Section 6 of A History of the Four Georges in Four Volumes, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 26. A Perilous Victory. On Tuesday, February 22nd, the debate took place in the House of Commons. It came on in the form of a motion for an address to the Sovereign, praying that he would make to the Prince of Wales an independent allowance of 100,000 a year. The motion was proposed by Pulteney himself. Lord Harvey seems to be surprised that Pulteney, after having advised the Prince not to press on any such motion, should nevertheless, when the Prince did persevere, actually propose the motion himself. But such a course is common enough, even in our own days, when statesmen make greater effort at political and personal consistency. A man often argues long and earnestly in the cabinet or in the councils of the opposition against some particular proposal, and then, when it is, in spite of his advice, made a party resolve, he goes to the House of Commons and speaks in its favor, nay, even, it may be, proposes it. Pulteney made a long and what would now be called an exhaustive speech. It was stuffed full of portentous erudition about the early history of the eldest sons of English kings. The speech was said to have been delivered with much less than Pulteney's usual force and fire, and indeed, so far as one can judge by the accounts, they can hardly be called reports, preserved of it, one is obliged to regard it as rather a languid and academical dissertation. We start off with what Henry III did for his son, afterwards Edward I, when that noble youth had reached the unripe age of fourteen. He granted to him the Duchy of Guienne. He put him in possession of the earldom of Chester. He made him owner of the cities and towns of Bristol, Stamford, and Grantham, with several other castles and manors, he created him Prince of Wales, to which, lest it should be merely a barren title, he annexed all the conquered lands in Wales, and he created him Governor of Ireland. All this, to be sure, was mightily liberal on the part of Henry III, and a very handsome and right royal way of providing for his own family. But it might be supposed an argument rather to frighten than to encourage a modern English Parliament. But the orator went on to show what glorious deeds and arms were done by this highly endowed prince, and the inferences which he appeared to wish his audience to draw were twofold. First, that Edward would never have done these glorious deeds if his father had not given him these magnificent allowances, and next, that if an equal or anything like an equal liberality were shown to Frederick, Prince of Wales, it is extremely probable that he would rush into the field at the first opportunity and make a clean sweep of the foes of England. We need not follow the orator through his account of what was done for Edward the Black Prince and what Edward the Black Prince had done in consequence, and how Henry V had been able to conquer France because of his father's early liberality. The whole argument tended to impress upon the House of Commons the maxim that in a free country, above all things, it is absolutely necessary to have the heir apparent of the crown bred up in a state of grandeur and independency. Despite the high-flown sentiments and the grandiose historical illustrations in which the speaker indulged, 
there seems to the modern intelligence an inherent meanness, a savor of downright vulgarity through the whole of it. If you give a prince only fifty thousand a year, you can't expect anything of him. What can he know of grandeur of soul, of national honor, of constitutional rights, of political liberty? You can't get these qualities in a prince unless you pay him at least a hundred thousand a year while his father is living. The argument would have told more logically if the English Parliament were going into the open market to buy the best prince they could get. There would be some show of reason in arguing that the more we pay, the better article we shall have. But it is hard indeed to understand how a prince, who is to be worth nothing if you give him 50000 a year, will be another black prince or Henry V if you let him have the spending of 50000 a year more. Walpole led the opposition to the motion. Much of the argument on both sides was essentially sordid, but there was a good deal also which was keen, close, and clever, and which may have even now a sort of constitutional interest. The friends of the prince knew they would have to meet the contention that Parliament had no right to interfere with the sovereign's appropriation of the revenues allotted to him. They therefore contended, and as it seems to us, with force and justice, that the Parliament which made the grants had a perfect right to see that the grants were appropriated to the uses for which they were intended, to follow out the grants in the course of their application, and even to direct that they should be applied to entirely different purposes, even if need were to resume them. It would naturally seem to follow from this assumption that Parliament had a right to call on the King to make the allowance of the Prince, but it would seem to follow also that the allowance ought not to be made independent and absolute. For if the Prince of Wales had an allowance absolutely independent of the will of any one, he had something which Pulteney and his friends were contending, as it was their business just then to contend, that the English Parliament had never consented to give to the King. On the other hand, it was pointed out with much effect that there never had been any express regulation in England to provide that the Prince of Wales should be made independent of his father, and there was clear good sense in the contempt with which Walpole treated the argument that the state dependency upon his father, in which the son of a great family usually lives, must necessarily tend to the debasing of the son's mind and the diminishing of his intelligence, or that the dignity and grandeur even of a Prince of Wales could not be as well supported by a yearly allowance as by a perpetual and independent settlement. Some of the speakers on Walpole's side, indeed Walpole himself occasionally, strove to show their willingness to serve the prince by utterances which must have caused the prince to smile a grim sardonic smile if he had any existing sense of humor. Please do not imagine, this was the line of observation, that we think one hundred thousand a year too much for his royal highness. Oh dear, no, nothing of the kind. We do not think it would be half enough if only the nation had the money to give away. Why, exclaimed one gushing orator, if we had the money, the only course we could take would be to offer his royal highness whatever he pleased to accept. And even in that case, we should have reason to fear lest his modesty might do an injury to his generosity by making him confine his demand within the strictest bounds of bare necessity. Were we, another member of the court party declared, 
to measure the prince's allowance by the prince's merit as we know no bounds to the latter we could prescribe no bounds to the former therefore as it was totally impossible that the treasury of any state could reward this extraordinary prince according to his merit the speakers on walpole's side mildly pleaded that they had only to fall back on the cold and commonplace rules of ordinary economy and try to find out what sum the nation could really afford to hand over the men who talked these revolting absurdities were saying among themselves an hour after that the prince was an avaricious and greedy beast and were openly proclaiming their pious wish that providence would be graciously inclined to rid the world of him nothing strikes one as more painful and odious in the ways of that court and that parliament than the language of sickening sycophancy which is used by all statesmen alike in public with regard to kings and princes for whom in private they could find no words of abuse too strong and coarse no curse too profane never was an oriental despot the most vain and cruel addressed in language of more nauseous flattery by great ministers and officers of state than were the early english sovereigns of the house of hanover the filthy indecency which came so habitually from the lips of walpole of other statesmen of the king sometimes even of the queen herself hardly seems more ignoble more demoralizing than the outpouring of a flattery as false as it was gross a flattery that ought to have sickened alike the man who poured it out and the man whom it was poured over poor stupid george seems to have been always taken in by it indeed in his dull heavy mind there was no praise the voice of man could utter which could quite come up to his perfections the quicker-witted queen sometimes writhed under it walpole however did not depend upon argument to carry his point the stone up his sleeve to use a somewhat homely expression which he meant to fling at his enemy was something quite different from any question of constitution or prescription or precedent of the genius of the black prince and the manner in which wild hal falstaff's companion had been endowed and allowanced into henry the victor of agincourt walpole flung down metaphorically speaking on the table of the house the record of the interview between the prince of wales and the great peers who waited on him bearing the message of the king the record set forth all that had happened how the king had declared himself willing to provide at once a suitable jointure for the princess of wales how he had shown that this had been under consideration and explained in the simplest way the reason why the arrangement had been delayed how his majesty had voluntarily taken it on himself that the prince should have fifty thousand a year absolutely independent of the sovereign's future action and over and above the revenues arising from the duchy of cornwall which his majesty thinks a very competent allowance considering his own numerous issue and the great expenses which do and which necessarily must attend an honourable provision for his whole royal family and then the record gave the answer of the prince of wales in its peculiar conclusion indeed my lords it is in other hands i am sorry for it or as the record of the peers cautiously concluded to that effect 
The reading of this document had one effect, which was instantly invoked for it by Walpole. It brought the whole controversy down to the question whether the prince's father or the prince's friends ought to be the better authority as to the amount which the king could afford to give and the amount which the prince ought to be encouraged to demand. It shrunk, in fact, into a mean discussion about the cost of provisions and the amounts of the land tax, the number of children George II had to maintain, as compared with the small family George I had to provide for. The fact that George II had a wife to maintain in becoming state in England, whereas George I had saved himself from the occasion of any such outlay, the total amount left for George II to spend as compared with the total amount which the differing conditions left at the disposal of his illustrious father. Let us see what the income of the Prince of Wales was computed to be by his friends at that time. He had 50,000 a year allowance. From that, said his friends, we must deduct the land tax, which at two shillings in the pound amounts to 5,000 pounds a year. This brings the allowance down to 45,000 pounds. Then comes the sixpenny duty to the civil list lottery, which has also to be deducted from the poor prince's dwindling pittance, and likewise the fees payable at the exchequer, and the sixpenny duty amounts to £1,250, and the fees to about £750, so that altogether £7,000 would have to be taken off, leaving the prince only £43,000 allowance. Then, to be sure, there was the Duchy of Cornwall, the revenues of which it was insisted did not amount to more than £9,000 a year, so that all told, the prince's income available for spending purposes was but £53,000 a year. And yet they pleaded pathetically the yearly expense of the prince's household, acknowledged and ratified by the king himself, came to £63,000, without allowing his royal highness one shilling for the indulgence of that generous and charitable disposition with which heaven had so bounteously endowed him walpole's instinct had conducted him right the reading of the message which walpole delivered with great rhetorical effect carried confusion into the tory ranks two hundred and four members voted for the address two hundred and thirty-four voted against it the king's friends were in a majority of thirty. Archdeacon Cox, in his life of Walpole, gives it as his opinion that the victory was obtained because some forty-five of the Tories quitted the house in a body before the division, believing that they were thus acting on constitutional principles, and that the interference of the House of Commons would be an unconstitutional, democratic, and dangerous innovation. But it is hardly possible to believe that the managers of the prince's case could have been kept in total ignorance up to the last moment of the fact that forty-five Tories were determined to regard the interference of Parliament as unconstitutional and to abstain from taking part in the division. It is declared to be positively certain that the whips, as we should now call them, of the prince's party had canvassed every man on their own side, if not on both sides, they could not have made up anything like the number they announced in anticipation to the prince if they had taken into account forty-five probable or possible abstentions among their own men. The truth evidently is 
that the reading of the king's message compelled a good many tories to withdraw who already were somewhat uncertain as to the constitutionalism in the tory sense of the course their leaders were taking they would probably have swallowed their scruples but for the message that dexterous stroke of policy was too much for them how can we they probably thus reasoned with themselves back up to the last a prince who positively refused to listen to the offer of a compromise spontaneously made by his father money went much further in those days than it does in ours fifty thousand pounds a year must have been a magnificent fortune for a prince of wales in the earlier part of the last century on the other hand george the second was literally stuffed and bloated with money he had between eight and nine hundred thousand a year and his wife was richly provided for odious bad taste selfishness and gripping avarice were exhibited on both sides of the dispute it would be hard to say which side showed to the lesser advantage there was much poverty all this time in london and indeed over the whole country trade was depressed employment was hard to get within a stone's throw of st james's palace men women and children were living in a chronic condition of semi-starvation the court and the parliament were wrangling fiercely over the question whether a king with a revenue of nearly a million could afford to give his eldest son an extra fifty thousand a year and whether a prince of wales could live in decency on fifty three thousand a year the patient cool-headed people of england who knew of all this such of them as did and who hated both king and prince alike yet put up with the whole thing simply because they had come to the conviction that nothing was to be gained by any attempt at a change they had been passing through so many changes they had been the victim of so many experiments that they had not the slightest inclination to venture on any new enterprise they preferred to bear the ills they had but they knew that they were ills and put on no affectation of a belief that they were blessings the debate in the house of lords took place on friday february twenty fifth lord carteret proposed the motion for the address to the king and went over much of the same historical ground that pulteney had traversed in the commons the duke of newcastle replied in his usual awkward and bungling fashion with the uneasy attitudes and clownish gestures which were characteristic of him he was not able to make any effective use of the king's message and the lord chancellor read it for him the division in the house of lords showed seventy-nine votes and twenty-four proxies for the king in all one hundred and three and twenty-eight votes and twelve proxies for the prince in all forty the king had a majority therefore of sixty-three some of the peers among them lord carteret and lord chesterfield signed a protest against the decision of the house the protest is like so many other protests of the lords a very interesting and even valuable state paper setting forth as it does all the genuine arguments of the prince's supporters in the clearest form and in the fewest words the house of lords at that time was a more independent body than it has shown itself in later years even already however it was giving signs of that decay as an effective political institution which had begun to set in and which was the direct result of walpole's determination to rely upon the representative chamber for the real work of governing the country 
neither walpole nor any one else seemed to care very much about the debate or the division in the house of lords already discussions in that chamber no matter how eloquent and earnest in themselves were beginning to assume that academic character which always sooner or later is exhibited where political debate is not endowed with any power to act directly on legislation walpole's victory was a very cheap affair in one sense it cost only nine hundred pounds of which five hundred pounds were given to one man and four hundred pounds to another even these two sums walpole used to say were only advances the bribed men were to have had the money at the end of the session in any case but they took advantage of the crisis to demand their pay at once but in another sense it was a dear a very dear victory to the minister the consent of the king to the offer of compromise had been extorted more than extorted by walpole indeed as walpole often afterwards told the story it was on his part not an extortion but an actual disregard and overriding of the king's command the king refused at the last moment to send the message to the prince walpole said the peers were waiting to carry it and that carry it they should and he would not allow the king time to retract his former consent and thereupon rushed off to the lords of the council and told them to go to the prince with the message even the queen walpole said had never given a real assent to the policy of the message when the victory in the commons was won the king and queen were at first well satisfied but afterwards when the prince became more rude and insolent in his conduct they both blamed walpole for it and insisted that his policy of compromise had only filled the head and heart of the young man with pride and obstinacy and that he regarded himself as a conqueror even though he had been nominally conquered the king felt bitterly about this and the grudge he bore to walpole was of long endurance and envenomed anger the king and queen would have got rid of him then if they could walpole thought i have been much nearer than you think he said to lord hervey to throwing it all up and going to end my days at houghton in quiet but he also told hervey that he believed he was of more consequence than any man before him ever was or perhaps than any man might ever be again and so he still held on to his place no doubt walpole meant that he was of more consequence than any man had been or probably would be in england he did not mean as lord hervey would seem to give out that he believed he was a greater and more powerful man than julius caesar lord hervey's comment however is interesting with regard to states and nations he coldly says nobody's understanding is so much superior to the rest of mankind as to be missed in a week after they have gone and with regard to particulars there is not a great banker that breaks who does not distress more people than the disgrace or retirement of the greatest minister that ever presided in a cabinet nor is there a deceased ploughman who leaves a wife and a dozen brats behind him that is not lamented with greater sincerity as well as a loss to more individuals than any statesman that ever wore a head or deserved to lose it there is a good deal of wholesome although perhaps somewhat melancholy truth in what lord hervey says perhaps we ought not to call it melancholy it ought rather to be considered cheerful and encouraging in the national sense the world some modern writer has said shuts up the shop for no man 
yet there is nevertheless a tinge of melancholy in the thought of a great man toiling striving giving up all his days and much of his nights to the service of some cause or country all the while firmly believing his life indispensable to the success of the cause the prosperity of the country and he dies and the cause and the country go on just the same End of chapter 26